The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John. The title of my message for you this evening is, The Ministry of the Holy Spirit Continued. And I say continued because we've been really diving into this topic for the last several weeks now. It seems clear to me that the, whole, the Lord has us camped out on this subject of the ministry of the third member of the Trinity or the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And, and so far, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the ministry of the Spirit in the world and how he is active and moving through the people of God to bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment of sin because they believe not on him of righteousness because Jesus is the righteousness and he's ascended to the Father and of judgment because the prince of this world has been judged. And so the Holy Spirit is working in the world and he's wooing and he's drawing and he's desirous of winning a people for the glory of God in heaven. And then last week, we took a pause from our studies in John because it was Pentecost Sunday. And so we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it was a beautiful weekend. We saw so many people filled with the Holy Spirit and received the upon or the epi experience. You know, I heard one preacher say it like this. The Holy Spirit is with me for my benefit, but he comes upon me for yours. So when the Spirit comes upon you, you you become a channel or a conduit of his love and his grace and his mercy. Well, today we're going to continue to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to see how he provides us, that is the church, with three things. Inspiration, illumination, and revelation. Now, Each one of those words is kind of a big topic all into its own. So let's just take a few minutes and and unpack each one of those terms, beginning with inspiration. And we see that in verse 12 of John 16, where Jesus says, I have so much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And all that, the, the, that, all that belongs to the Father is mine. And that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. All right, so there's a lot there. Let's talk about this idea of inspiration. Jesus begins this section by saying to his disciples, there's a lot more that I want to get into, a lot more that I want to discuss and, and, and reveal and, and unpack for you guys, but you're not ready for it. Not yet, at least. You know, Jesus was looking into their eyes and, and it was like they were spent. They were drained emotionally, mentally, they were physically drained, spiritually drained in every way. You know, when you're talking to someone and and they get that kind of glazed over look in their eyes and you can tell like this is no longer reaching the intended target. If you don't know what that experience is like, just try preaching once or twice. 
I'm very familiar with it after 20 years of preaching the word. You know, it was um, Chuck Smith. He used to come down and, and teach every Friday afternoon at the Bible college I attended up in Marietta, California. And he had this, this phrase that he coined. He said, you know, the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. In other words, you reach a point at which nothing is sticking anymore. And so Jesus is looking at his disciples. It had been a long evening. They'd already shared you know, the, the, the Lord's Supper together. He'd washed their feet. He'd shared with them this very disturbing news that he was going to be leaving them. And, and then they began to make their way through the vineyards. And Jesus gave them the teaching of the vines and the branches and unfolded that revelation for them. And, and it was just like they couldn't handle anymore. But that's okay. Because Jesus went on to say, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when the spirit of truth comes, he is the spirit of truth. When he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So in other words, when the spirit came, he would bring further revelation and understanding in all of the topics and subjects that Jesus wasn't able to get to on this night or if you back up, even within the three and a half year window of his ministry. And this word came to pass specifically and exactingly in the ministry and through the lives of his disciples, who many of them went on to write the gospels and many of the epistles that we read in the New Testament. And it's interesting because when you get to the book of Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians and all the way through the book of Revelation, there's so many essential doctrines to the, the Christian faith that don't get unearthed until you get to those books. So for instance, think about the doctrine of justification, this idea that God sees us just as though we'd never sinned. Or what about sanctification? Or this idea of Jesus' substitutionary atonement on the cross. Like, where did those doctrines come from? Where did those insights come from? You see, the, the disciples didn't understand any of those concepts at this point. They were clueless and in the dark. For that matter, when you look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, where did he come up with this idea that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in what Jesus did for us alone? I mean, was that something that just came, he came up with off the top of his head? Or how about the understanding of the church and its governance and its purpose and God's plan for it here on the earth? Or what about the second coming? I mean, there are hints about all of these doctrines and all of these topics in the Old Testament. But it's not until you get to the epistles that were penned, many of them, by the men in this group that these things really begin to blossom and take shape. And so the question is, how did they go from being clueless to scholarly and confident in their understanding of what this ministry of Jesus was all about? And the answer is revealed to us here. It happened because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He led them and guided them into all of the truth. The definite article is there because he's speaking there about the full counsel of God or the gospel. It was a work, in other words, of divine inspiration. Now, what do we mean when we talk about the fact that God's word is inspired? That's a, that's a word that's common to our vernacular. And, and we'll sometimes refer to a speech being inspiring 
Or perhaps we'll reference some athlete's performance on the field or on the court as, oh, they played inspired basketball tonight. And when we say that, what we mean is that they were moving or motivating. But we mean something altogether different when we talk about the Bible being inspired. To say that the Bible is inspired is to say that it is without error, that it was authored and given by God himself. Now, that's a distinction that is unique to this book. I mean, millions of other books have been written, and many of them are moving, and many of them are inspiring, but only this book claims divine inspiration and then backs up that claim. Listen to the way 2 Timothy 3.16 puts it. Let's read this together out loud, actually. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Go back to that word inspired there. It literally means God breathed. So the scriptures were breathed by heaven themselves. And the word for breath is the same word for spirit. Remember that? So in other words, when these men sat down, like John, to write his gospel account, or Matthew, for that matter, uh, these guys, they, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them, and they communicated God's heart. So it was their hand that moved, but it was God's heart that was being communicated. The disciples were the instruments, but the message was heaven's. That's what it means that God's word is inspired. The Holy Spirit guided them into the truth. That's how we got our Bible. Peter, for his part, says it like this. He was another guy who was there that day. He says in 2 Peter 1.21 that the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, that, that phrase there, carried along, it's, it's the same phrase that they would use to describe a ship whose sails were filled with a wind. And so the Spirit energized these men, and they began to write. Now, at this point, some of you are thinking, well, that's, you know, a self-fulfilling word, that if the Bible says that this book is inspired, how do we really know that that's true? I mean, it's one thing to claim inspiration, but another thing altogether to prove it. So what proof is there that they really did find the truth, that the Spirit really did guide them to the right truth? What proof do we have? Now, I offer for your consideration just three quick things. Number one, fulfilled prophecy. We know that this is the divinely inspired, without error, word of God because of the word, the sure word of prophecy. Nearly a quarter of your Bible is prophetic in nature. Many, many, many of those prophecies have already come to pass exactingly, perfectly, specifically. In fact, did you know this? There are more than 300 prophecies regarding the first coming of the Messiah. They tell us everything from where he would be born to how he would be born to, to the, the, what, what kind of work he would do and, and his ministry and all the rest. And Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of those 308 prophecies. And that gives us confidence that this word really did come from heaven. God says, test me on this. I'll tell you in advance the future. I'll name individuals and then you can verify that it's true. So prophecy is one reason we know this book is inspired. Let me give you another one. Consistency. Let me explain that one a little bit further. This 
is not just one book, but actually it's a collection of 66 different books. It was written by a collection of 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years or so. And it was written by men on three different continents. And yet, it is consistent in its theme. There isn't a single contradiction that you can point to in this book. And the message has this coherency. There's this scarlet thread of redemption that weaves its way throughout the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Now, I challenge you to find 40 individuals from the same time period and put them in the same room and get them to agree on just one topic. Yet these 40 men lived over a period of 1,600 years. They wrote from three different continents in different languages, and yet they agree on everything. The consistency of the scripture lets us know that it is divinely inspired. Praise the Lord. And then thirdly, I'll give you this one as a bonus. It has been proven over and over to be true, both archaeologically and scientifically. Archaeology and science both prove the Bible. And though many have set out to disprove the Bible and, and they have, they've tried to say, well, this person never existed or this is in error and there's no proof that there was ever a King David or, or so on and so forth. And then it seems like every time archaeologists put their shovel in the ground in Israel, they overturn some dirt and they stumble upon some discovery that further cements the, ver the veracity and the validity of God's word. It is on 100% true archaeologically and scientifically. For a long time, the church struggled because in Isaiah 40, it talks about how he sits on the circle of the earth, and everyone at that time knew that the earth was flat. So, oh no, but then, you know, eventually we make our way to space in the 60s and, and find out and discover what God knew to be true all along, that the earth is indeed round. And so science, archaeology, they confirm the truth and the inspiration of Scripture. So do things like uh, prophecy and consistency. The inspired Word of God is a wonderful, miraculous reality, but it's not enough. You see, we don't just need the, the Spirit to inspire the Word. He's done that. But we also need the Spirit to illuminate the Word to our hearts so that it makes sense to us. So we need to talk now for a minute about the gift of illumination. The Spirit is the one who brings bring inspiration originally to the men who wrote Scripture, but he now gives us illumination. And we see this again in verse 13, where it says, He'll guide you into all truth. He wants to guide you into the truth so that you can know who God is, so you can know the truth about heaven and hell and the past and your future and where you came from and where this whole thing is headed. Only by revelation or illumination of the Spirit are these things possible. Now, the word illumination comes from the Greek word photizo, photizo, photizo. Same word from which we would get our English words photo, photograph, or phosphorus. And all those words deal with the same subject of light. So when we talk about illumination, we're talking about being enlightened or shining the light on something, casting the light on something. And the, the Holy Spirit does, with, does this with us in, in regards to God's word in a very unique and a very specific way. The way he illuminates the inspired word 
is by taking what is written and timeless in this book, and he highlights it in a fresh and active way, and he speaks it, he breathes fresh life into the timeless word of God so that it hits our hearts in a timely and relevant manner. Now, let me dig into this a little deeper. There are two different Greek words that are translated as the word of God in the Bible. The first is the word logos. So in John 1, in the beginning was the logos, the logos, the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. And and the word translated there as word is logos. It generally refers to the written word of God. This is the logos. You're holding in your hands the logos, the written word of God. Now there is a second Greek word that describes the freshly spoken word of God. And it is the Greek word rhema, R-H-E-M-A. So for instance, when Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he used the Greek word rhema. It is the freshly spoken word of God that breathes life. Similarly, in Romans 10, 17, when Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Again, the word that is used there is rhema. In other words, it is the freshly spoken word of God that gives life and builds and supports our faith. It's not optional, it's vital and necessary. You need the rhema of God. So here's the question, how do we experience the rhema of God? Well, you probably already have without even knowing it. Have you ever been in a church service where maybe it's me, maybe a different pastor is speaking and and all of a sudden something that he or I says hits you right in the heart and you're like, oh my goodness, it's like he's been following me around. I've literally had people come up and ask me like, did you like hire a private investigator or something to follow me? Because every word you said in today's sermon applied directly to my situation. You ever felt like that? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Give me some response here, people. Okay, praise the Lord. That is the rhema. As I bring the logos, as I preach from the logos, God takes his written word, his timeless, unchanging truth, and he applies it uniquely and specifically in hundreds of different ways at the exact time, at the exact same time. It's, it's a rhema word. And, and oftentimes it's funny. People will say, oh, pastor, I loved it when you said this. And then they'll share something with me. And I'm thinking, I didn't say that. <laughs> and I'm okay with that because I've learned that what's happening is the Spirit is taking you and he's translating what I'm saying and he's using it to address a specific situation in your life. Another way that he'll do this is in your quiet times, your devotional times. If you open the word and and you spend time with the Lord, which, by the way, each and every one of you needs to be doing every single day. You know, a chapter a day keeps the devil away. That's what my dad used to say. (laughs) But we need the word of God. Because it furnishes us, it equips us, it feeds us. You say, I don't understand it. Listen, it doesn't matter. It feeds your soul. You might not remember what you ate yesterday, but it nourished you for that day. In the same way, the word, it nourishes and feeds your heart and your soul and it equips you and furnishes you with everything you need for that day. 
Anyways, I'll get off my soapbox. You ever been reading through the Bible and, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a particular verse just jumps off the page and it just comes alive. Again, this is the rhema word of God. He's taking what is written and he's applying it specifically and uniquely to your life and to your heart. But he can't illuminate what you aren't walking in and reading through. So you've got to get in the word until it breathes fresh life over your soul. And I love the way that he points out how the spirit is a guide to us. He will guide you into the truth. You know, when you visit a new place or a new city, you know, there's, a, there's several different ways that you can do that. One is you can just kind of show up and and while you're there, you just stumble around and you, you see what you see and you experience what you experience. Another way to do that is to do a little research in advance and you hop on TripAdvisor and, and you find the best places to eat and the, you get some reviews on the best hotels and things like that. And that's helpful. But then there's a third way that you can tour a new place. And that is to get a personal tour guide. And they're fantastic because they can take you to those mom and pop spots, those places that are off the beaten track. As an example of this, when we were in Israel just recently, we had a free afternoon in the old ancient city of Jerusalem. And so he, we had a couple hours. He said, go ahead and everybody just take off. And, and everybody began to scramble and it was lunchtime. So everybody's looking for a place to eat. And our tour guide, he nudges me, he says, hey, pastor, you want me to take you to the best hummus you've ever had in your life? I'm thinking, let's do this. Let's go. And so he begins to take me on this tour. And I got to tell you, we were walking down back streets and alleys that I've never been to. I've been to Israel a number of times. And we were in parts of the old city I've never seen or experienced before. And, and he's just this labyrinth, this maze. And eventually we end up at this little hole-in-the-wall restaurant that wasn't more than 10 feet by 10 feet. It was tiny. There was no sign on the outside of the door. But there was a line of people, which makes you know that it's good, right? And so we waited our turn and we sat down. And I had to tell you that I had, that was the best hummus I ever had in my life. And I never would have found this place, not if you gave me 10 lifetimes to find it, without that personal guide. Well, listen, as a believer, God has given you his personal guidebook. This is your guidebook to how to successfully navigate this thing we call life. But he hasn't just given you a guidebook. He's given you a personal guide, the Holy Spirit, to help you understand it. And when you read the Bible with the help of the Holy Spirit, it's an absolute game changer. Instead of being a chore, it becomes a delight. Instead of being dull and dry and lifeless, it comes alive. You need to begin your quiet time by asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you with a rhema word. Lord, what is the word for me? What is the word for today? What is the word for now? Okay? Will you do that? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right. So he illuminates the word of God for us, the inspired word. And then secondly, he illuminates something else. In the end of verse 13, he illuminates what is yet to come. Notice, he will speak what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. Again, remember who Jesus is talking to in this instance. He has with him the 11 disciples. Judas has already gone off to betray him. So now there's the 11. And he's saying, guys, the Holy Spirit's going to show you the future. What is yet to come? 
And this came quite true, literally. I mean, one of the men standing there listening to Jesus say this was none other than the Apostle John. And John went on to live a long life, and at the end of his life, you may recall, he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. It was this rocky outcropping where they sent the worst of the worst criminals to just rot and die. And so John was put on this island so he would stop preaching the gospel. And yet it was while he was there in this God-forsaken place that he received a vision from heaven. Let that be a word of the Lord for someone in here tonight. You think you're in a place where God can't speak and God can't move and God can't touch and God can't reach. There's no place on this planet he can't reach. Amen? And so he can meet you on your Patmos. And that's what he did with John. And he gave him this incredible vision of what was to come. And John wrote it down and he sent it in letter form to the churches. And we know that as the book of Revelation. That's right. Revelation. You know, this is glorious for us because he says, I'm going to show you what's to come. And that's what we find in the book of Revelation. When I was a kid... I learned a secret, and and that was if I wanted to know what the answers were to the questions in my math homework, all I had to do was flip to the back of the book. You remember that? They don't do this anymore, but back when I was a kid, all the answers were written down in the back of the book. And so too, don't you know it's true for us as well, as Christians. When you want to know what the answers are, when you want to know where this whole thing is heading, How is this whole thing going to play out? What is the culmination of the ages? All you have to do is flip to the back of the book, and there you'll find John's revelation. And the answers are unfolded. The future is written out for us. You know, there are a lot of people who struggle with the the book of Revelation, and they get bogged down in the minutia of it. And for them, it's perplexing, and it's challenging, and it's it's a conundrum. And they get caught up in all of the the, the plagues and the judgments and the the bowls and and all of the rest. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, the book of Revelation is really not hard or difficult to understand. In fact, it's so easy, you can summarize it in two words. And maybe you've heard this before, but here's the whole book of Revelation in two words. God wins. (laughs) Somebody say amen. (laughs) That's what the book of Revelation declares. That at the appropriate time, at the end of the age, God is going to send his son Jesus on the back of a white horse. And a sword is going to protrude from his mouth. And it's going to destroy his enemies. And he's going to right every wrong. And he's going to touch his foot down on the Mount of Olives. And he's going to establish his throne in the city of David. And he's going to rule and he's going to reign for a thousand years from the throne there in Jerusalem. And we will rule and we will reign with him. Praise the Lord. That's your future. People say, oh, Christians are all about the end. No, no, no. We're all about the new beginning. Jesus is coming, and he's going to rule and reign with righteousness, and we'll be with him. And so we know how this thing's going to play out. We don't have to face the future 
with fear and trembling. We can walk into it confidently because we know our God is with us. We know our God is for us. And we know that our God is coming back soon in Jesus' name. So he, he inspires the word and then he illuminates the word and he illuminates the future. And there's one more thing that I want to talk about with you this evening. And that is how the, the spirit of God then brings revelation concerning a particular topic. And we read about it in verse 14. He, Jesus said, will glorify me. All of the, the written word, everything that the Spirit highlights is for one purpose and one purpose only, to reveal Jesus of Nazareth. Everything that you read in the word should bring about a greater revelation of understanding in your heart concerning the person, the nature, the character, the power, the goodness, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's whole goal in writing the Bible. He wants to make much of Jesus. It's the goal of prophecy, for that matter. In Revelation 19.10, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So you want to know what prophecy is all about? It's all about Jesus. He is ultimately the thing that all prophecy points to. The Old Testament prophets anticipated his first coming, and the New Testament prophets point to his return. It's all about him. But not just prophecy specifically, also just the Bible generally. Do you remember that story? This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. Do you remember that story in Luke chapter 24? It's after Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. And, and there Jesus joins these two disciples who are walking down the road called Emmaus. And he joins them incognito. They don't know that it's Jesus. And they begin to talk. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? And they begin to tell him. And, and he says, oh, he plays dumb. He's like, oh, tell me more, guys. And they say, are you the only stranger in Israel? And how Jesus of Nazareth, he was crucified, and we thought he was the Lord. And, and then there's this turning point, and it tells us there that at some point, Jesus began to expound to them all the scriptures. And beginning with Moses and working his way through the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and then the law and the prophets and, and the Psalms and the, the wisdom books and, and all the rest, he pointed to himself. And at some point, that was like the greatest Bible study ever given. And at some point, he acted like, well, got to go, guys. See you later. And they're like, wait, don't leave. And they compelled him to come with them. And, and they brought him into this house. And, and there, it says, when he broke the bread, perhaps it was as he took the bread and blessed it, and his sleeves rolled up like this, they saw the nail marks. And they said, it's Jesus. And in that instant, he vanished out of their sights. And do you remember what they said to the, one another after that? They said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us. Listen, friends, we don't come to church. We don't open this book so that we can get bigger heads. What we want is burning hearts, and that comes as a result of experiencing Jesus. No matter where you are, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about the revelation of Jesus. You know, he's, he's the subject of every story. He's the point of every passage. And I just want to highlight that for you really quickly. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, 
He is seen as our high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he's the commander of the Lord's army. In Judges, he's our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's the seed of David. In Kings and Chronicles, he's our reigning king. In Ezra, he's our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of everything that's broken. In Esther, he is our Mordecai, our advocate. In Job, he's our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he's revealed as our shepherd. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our meaning for life. In the Song of Solomon, he's the loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he's our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the glorious Lord. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband. In Joel, he's the outpourer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's our judge and savior. In Jonah, he's the risen prophet. In Micah, he's the ruler of the world from Bethlehem. In Nahum, he's our stronghold. In Habakkuk, he's our watchman. In Zephaniah, he's the mighty to save. In Haggai, he's the restorer. In Zechariah, he's the branch of David, the one who was pierced for us. And in Malachi or Malachi, the, the uh, Italian prophet, as some of you know him, he's the son of righteousness. There's Jesus in every book of the Old Testament. He's there. You just got to look for him. Praise the Lord. I could keep going. He's in the New Testament, too. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But suffice it to say, he's the first and the last. Amen. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega, the keeper of creation and the creator of all. He's the architect of the universe and the manager of all times. He was, he is, and he will be. He's unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, but never undone. His ways are right. His word is eternal. His will is unchanging, and his mind is on you. He is my redeemer, my savior, my guide and my peace. He is my joy, my comfort, my Lord, and my life. Praise the Lord. That is Jesus. That's why we open this book. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. And just one more thought, because we've opened the inspired word. The, the highlighter of the Holy Spirit has illuminated, enlightened our hearts. He's taken the spotlight and he's shined it tonight on the person of Jesus. But there's one more thing Jesus says about the Spirit in verse 15 that is just mind-blowing and staggering in its implications. He says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That makes sense, right? Everything that God the Father has, he puts in Jesus account. He gives Jesus access to all that is his. All that the Father has is mine. But now look what he says. And that's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. In other words, Jesus says, everything that God has, he's given to me. And now through me, you have access to all of it. We have access to all of the wisdom of Jesus, all of the authority of Jesus, all of the power of Jesus, all of the victory of Jesus. All of it has been made available to us through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And the way that we access every single one of those gifts is through the 
person of the Holy Spirit. So the closer you walk to the Spirit, the more you enjoy access to all that God the Father has given to Jesus. Imagine if somebody put, I don't know, let's say you became friends with Elon Musk. That wouldn't be bad. And let's just say he goes, you know, I kind of like you. And I'm going to put a billion dollars in your bank account. Just adds all kinds of zeros to your bank account. And you could walk around for a week as a billionaire. But if you don't ever take out your debit card and use it, if you don't access that money, you can still live like a pauper. You can live like a poor person, even though you're a billionaire, if you fail to access what has been made available to you in your account. Can I say it like this? God, through his son Jesus, has given us infinitely more than a billion dollars. He has given us himself. And the way that we access that is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to intimately acquaint ourselves with the third member of the Trinity. And we do that as we open the logos, as we seek the rhema, as we allow the spotlight ministry of the Holy Spirit to turn our attention and reveal the person of Jesus. And the more of Jesus that you see and experience, the more access you have to all that he has, and the more victory you walk in, the more breakthroughs you experience, the more change you you bring, no more transformation you encounter. It's all through Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.